Hi, everyone, and welcome to Bad on Paper podcast. I am Olivia Mentor. And I'm Becca Freeman. Today, we are talking about our October book club pick, When We Are Bright and Beautiful, which was is probably the most divisive book I think we've ever picked. I think so. I think that this beats You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty on the the split scale. Yeah. So we're going to get into all of it. There's certainly a lot to unpack. But before we get there, let's talk about some highs and lows. Yeah. Tell me your high. My high, my high is discovering the world of adult coloring books. I think I've mentioned this before briefly, maybe. Yeah, I've heard about it, but I'd like to hear more about how it's <laughs> made its way into your high, which is, yeah, that's a big it distinction. Is, it is. Well, I mean, I didn't have a lot of other things to choose from. It was just what came to mind immediately, maybe. Every night after dinner, we've been turning on a podcast and like lighting some candles. And then we do the little coloring book, Jake and I, together. This sounds so ridiculous. Do you by do the, the same page together? No, or you no. each have your own? <laughs> no, we each have our own. Oh, I was going to say. We have very different is, strategies. Very different strategies. I was going to say, that is like a sign of a, a great relationship if you could do a coloring book page together without getting in a fight. Or just like very disturbingly codependent, one or the other. But anyway, it is just the most soothing thing. It's like a very nice way to turn your brain off in the way that watching TV does without looking at a screen. So I love it. I really I really highly suggest it to people. I tried to get into adult coloring books a few years ago when they first got trendy and it didn't it didn't stick for me, which is interesting because I it sounds like something that I would have liked. Maybe I'll have to give it another try. Yeah, give it another go. I don't know. Maybe you'll like it. But sometimes I have to like pull myself away. I'm like, okay, stop, Olivia. Stop coloring. (laughs) So it's been nice. But what is your high? I don't know if I can use my trip to Spain for a third week in a row. I had anticipating it the first half of it. And now I have the second half of it. I promise it won't also be next week's high. But it was so great. Let's just have it be your high forever. Forever. Every week. Do you remember when I went to Spain in October of 2022? It's like three years later. People will be like, Becca has been mentioning Spain for eight weeks in a row, and mm-hmm. I've just now noticed. Mm-hmm. I love it. It was great. It was so nostalgic for me to go back there and to rediscover Madrid, having studied abroad there and not having been there since I studied abroad, which was 16 years ago. So I had a great time. We we did definitely different things than we did when I studied abroad there. We hit a couple of museums. We mostly just walked around, honestly, and just like checked out different areas. We went to a flamenco show, which was really fun. That did look really fun. Had some great meals. Yeah, it was it was wonderful. And honestly, you said having my book on submission while I was on a trip was like accidentally a smart thing. And honestly, it ended up being so great because I had somebody there with me for every piece of it. And as a single person, like if I were at home, I would have just been at my apartment by myself. And and that actually ended up being great too. Yeah. You're always going to remember that. It's going to be so special. And then separately, I have two belated anniversaries to celebrate that I would like to just commemorate on the podcast. First, it was my 10-year New York anniversary on September 28th, and I had failed to mention it. Oh, congratulations. I wonder if this makes me a true New Yorker now. Is there like a number? Don't people say it's like 15 or something? Oh, I haven't made it yet. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Five to go. Let's call it 10. You okay. feel like a New Yorker to me, so. I do. That's I, all that matters, I feel like my a New opinion. New Yorker to me. 
And then the other anniversary is it's our six month podiversary on oh. October 1st. And I didn't say happy podiversary to you. Oh, well, I didn't even know that was happening. I feel like it's been so much longer <laughs> because like we started talking like yeah, in, in January. January. So, but wow, gosh, that's, that's a good point. Feels great. I feel like every month has been a little bit better. Yeah. And I feel like it started really well too. So that's saying yeah, a lot. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Our three things episode the other week was like one of our most popular episodes ever. Yeah. And so fun. And I'm glad that everyone liked it so much. And I literally have now on my phone, I have a notes app where it's just things I want to talk about. So I have a running list of both helpful and completely unhelpful things, chaotic and useful. I'm so excited to record the next one. Love. What about lows? Okay. So my low is that I watched the first episode of that new Jeffrey Dahmer show on Netflix. I've heard about it, but it's it's not, not oh. me. Oh, boy. It is. I'm not easily, like, creeped out. It is so disturbing. I actually, as we were working on the outline for this, uh, most of which Becca did, but I think I'm going to talk about it later. But it was so gratuitously upsetting that I had to wonder why, how it got made. Like, it's uh, the main actor in it does a great job, but it's just, it was upsetting to me. So that was my low. What is your low? I wrecked my back in Spain. Last week's episode was like the preview to that where I was like, oh, we've been walking so much and and my hips really hurt. And then the next day, I have never had this happen before where it really feels like, I don't know what it means to throw out one's back. I don't know if there's like criteria. (laughs) So I don't know if it's technical to say that I threw out my back, but my lower back, I was in so much pain. I, starting on Thursday, so like basically 48 hours before we left, I messed up my back so badly. And I was like, Allie, am I walking weird? And she's like, yeah, it looks like you have to take a giant shit right now. And I'm trying to put it on Instagram. I laughed. I laughed to myself when I read that. I, and I like couldn't walk fast and every, oh my God, it was so bad. Um, luckily it's now Wednesday, so it's been six days. I'm like mostly better, but oh, getting old, man. Don't recommend. Zero stars. That sounds deeply unpleasant. Does it still look like you have to take a shit when you walk? No. Have you I, inquired? I can, I can walk normally now. I mean, this is probably like as it should. It really only hurts when I have terrible posture. Um, uh, so. As you said that I wanted to like sit up straight. I'm literally like hunched over my table like a gargoyle right now. <laughs> Me too. <sighs> well, let's take a quick ad break before we get into this episode. Okay, Becca, I have a question for you. And that question is, do you think it's true or a myth that millennials are generally terrified about talking on the phone? I think it's absolutely true. I feel like I feel that way. And I think everyone I know feels that way. Okay, good. Because I personally also 100% feel this way, particularly when it comes to talking to strangers on the phone and scheduling appointments. And that's exactly why I'm such a ZocDoc enthusiast. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them with absolutely zero waiting on hold with a receptionist uh, and awkward phone call time, which is completely ideal for me. It's been such a game changer for me personally because I have, I want 
to say that I have the worst insurance. There might be worse insurance out there, but it is pretty darn bad and almost no one takes it. And I can't even tell you how many hours of research and phone calls ZocDoc has saved me. I love that I can read reviews on doctors so I can make sure I'm getting the right doctor, not just the first one that takes my insurance. And I love that I can see their full appointment schedule so I can pick a time that actually works for me instead of just the next available. Because when I get on the phone, my phone phobia just manifests in like, Hey, they're like, hey, could you come in at like 730 in the morning on your birthday? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. No problem. (laughs) I totally know what you mean. Actually, I've talked about before. I was recently visiting my parents who have just moved to a new state. And naturally, they don't have new doctors lined up yet. But when I was there, my mom was dealing with this annoying skin issue and avoiding getting it checked out because she didn't have her regular doctors just down the street. And She just kept saying, I don't know anyone here. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. And I was like, mom, use ZocDoc. It makes it so much easier to search in your area. You can read reviews. You know you're getting a doctor that you can trust. And you can get an appointment today probably. So yeah, I really am a ZocDoc super fan myself too. So if you need to book an appointment or you just want to do something nice for yourself and book those annual checkups, Go to ZocDoc.com, find the doctor that's right for you, and book an appointment in person or remotely that works for your schedule. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc, and I'm one of them. It's my go-to whenever I need to find and book a doctor. Go to ZocDoc.com BOP and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com BOP. ZocDoc.com BOP. Let's get into this book. Quick summary here, but before we get into the summary, I just want you to know that this book has a lot of trigger warnings, heavy trigger warnings. I think the two biggest are probably sexual assault and pedophilia, but others too. There's definitely yeah. some like fat phobia in here. There's a lot in here. There's a lot. And I also just want to say that there are resources in the show notes for the National Sex Assault Hotline where you can get confidential 24-7 support or chat online. Yeah, I would just really say to take those trigger warnings seriously and to really take care if you think this is going to be upsetting for you. Please don't listen if you think it's going to be something that you can't get through. And yeah, those resources are there for everyone, and we encourage anyone to check them out if uh, you think you might need them. Quick plot summary. So the Quinns are an ultra-wealthy Upper East Side family, and when their youngest son, Billy, is accused of raping his on-again, off-again girlfriend, the family spares no expense on his defense and close ranks around him. Even if for Cassie, his adoptive middle sister, that means abandoning the newfound freedom she's found in her life in New Haven after she fled the city following a breakup. The second half of the book follows Billy's trial, where it becomes increasingly apparent he's not as innocent as the Quinn clan thought. When the trial looks bleakest for Billy, his defense team makes one last Hail Mary pass and exposes the fact that Cassie's ex-boyfriend is actually Lawrence Quinn, her adoptive father, which exposes inconsistencies in the victim's testimony. Ultimately, Billy is acquitted even as the family comes to realize his guilt. Just one more disclaimer before we get into this because of the heavy topic matter. I just want to make it really clear that we're talking about a book and fictional events. The book was, was probably designed to be maximally provocative. And while it definitely mirrors a lot of true-to-life events, I don't want anyone to mistake us 
condoning anyone's behavior in this book. Yeah, absolutely not. These are abysmal actions and often, if not completely abysmal characters. (laughs) So there's a lot to be discussed, but that's important to clarify for sure. So I'm curious to hear from you because this was your pick. And (laughs) I want to know what you thought of the book overall and why you wanted to pick it. Yes. So I read this book about maybe two months ago. And I read it because Jennifer Weiner had recommended it on the podcast. I can't remember if I saw this before or after I read, but I saw that Grace read it and really liked it. And we have similar tastes. So I was like, I'll give this a go. Downloaded it on my Kindle. I knew nothing about it other than there was a twist. That was it. And I was like, okay, I'll give this a shot, which I think that that really changed my experience because I wasn't like prepared for it to be divisive. (laughs) I wasn't I wasn't prepared for it to be so controversial, which I think for a lot of people could have been upsetting. Yeah, it's interesting. I I definitely knew that it was going to be controversial going in and I wonder how that informed my read. Yeah, yeah, I definitely want to hear more about that. But why I, I suggested it for book club is because my very first thought when I finished reading was like, I just have to talk to someone about this because I just sat there for a second. and I was like, I feel kind of gross, but also it's making me think about things in interesting ways. But also, I don't know if I like how they did certain things, but also I've never read something similar. So there were a lot of thoughts going on. And I just thought that everyone would have thoughts. And that has been the case. (laughs) I don't know if I could say I enjoyed it, but I did fly through it. And I found it to be very fast paced. So I can't say I I liked it, but I kind of appreciated it for what it was. And I wanted to talk about it, if that makes sense. How do you feel about it? That's a great question, Olivia. (laughs) I don't know the answer. I feel like this is simultaneously a one-star book and a four-star book for me. And I I do not I know if that averages, if one trumps the other. I do not know. Probably on about page 40, I texted you and was like, I hate this book. <laughs> and then I ended up finishing it that same day, not because I had to, but because I couldn't put it down. So props to creating such a addictive story but I hated everyone throughout <laughs> felt yeah. very uncomfortable it, it, it certainly is not something I, I normally would have read I have no idea how I feel about this yeah it's a little bit confusing because you don't feel good after you've read it no at all I no. mean I think <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, we can get into this later, but I think there's a really interesting discussion to be had about like books that have that effect and like, do they accomplish anything? Is it worth it? All of that. We have a listener voicemail, which we can get into now with some thoughts as well. Hi, Becca and Olivia. Big fan of the pod. This book was honestly a mind fuck for me. I don't know if I can say that on the pod, but I was so just like wrapped up in it and then the minute the switch flipped and I understood kind of what was actually going on with the relationship and the affair I felt so uncomfortable like I had to finish the book right away that night I stayed up late and then just like couldn't sleep because I felt so uncomfy so I just I enjoyed it I like went right through the book in one sitting but also 
could not recommend it to a friend because I was so just like in an uncomfortable feeling the entire time. Curious to hear what everyone else's thoughts are and your thoughts are on the pod. Thanks. Bye. So at what point did you kind of figure out what was happening in this book? Not until later than I maybe should have. I was the same way, actually. (laughs) I, and there were a lot of hints towards it. I thought there were a couple different things going on. So for most of the first half of the book, I thought that Cassie was sleeping with one or both of her brothers. This is what I thought. Yeah, the minute that it was mentioned that she was adopted, I was like, oh, she's sleeping with one of the brothers. This is Same. like Same. absolutely what's happening. And I thought that potentially she was the one who smashed up Billy's car. I thought that she was more involved in the case between Billy and Diana than she actually was. She was indirectly involved, but I, I thought she was like directly involved. And it seemed really clear that she felt like her place in this family was unearned. And so I thought she was like sleeping with both brothers to like make them like her, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of red herrings that make you think that. Like she's always kind of being like overly touchy with them. And she got in bed with the older brother at one point and yes. in a way that felt not like something one would do with their siblings in their 20s. Yeah, it was very strange. And it it successfully distracted me from what was really going on. Well, the other thing that I was very convinced of, which turned out to not be true at all, was when the police officer came to New Haven and was like sniffing around Cassie, I somehow got it in my head. I, I like got whiffs of pedophilia. And I thought that it was a Jeffrey Epstein Romana Clay. And I thought that there was either some child pornography thing or that he was maybe like involved in selling children or teenagers into into sex work. I don't know. That like Billy was or the Lawrence or the father Lawrence, was. Lawrence. I, I okay. knew that there was something not right with him. Right. But I didn't think that it was between him and Cassie. Yeah. Because the the name, the Marcus Silver thing, that was actually very weird because yeah, it was weird that she called him that. They did attempt to explain it. But then after she lets go of it, she, she stops referring to him as that. And it's like Lawrence plus Cassie all over the place. And so it felt like intentional obfuscation to an unnecessary degree. Yeah. You know, the one thing that I kind of had a problem with or that I left. Oh, the just the one like, thing? <laughs> well, of course, I have a problem with everything in this book. But in terms of plot device, this relationship she talks about with this Marcus Silver guy, and then you realize like, oh, actually, she's just, you know, mm-hmm. been been replacing. That I felt like was a little cheap. I was kind of yeah, like, agree. I didn't like that. I think it is kind of reflective of like what this book was kind of about for me, which is the stories we tell ourselves yes. that are easier than reality yes and the way that can kind of be expanded to the stories we tell ourselves about men in general mm-hmm. <laughs> and what's okay and what's not so I th- I saw it in that way but I it left me with a bad taste in my mouth at the end I mean everything did <laughs> but that was the one plot point where I was like mm, I don't know if I like that I felt like it was kind of I was bamboozled <laughs> yeah it felt slightly dishonest because it also didn't feel like once she abandoned it, it didn't feel like she was like repressing it where she was not admitting it to herself. Like it was it was just a trick for us, for the reader. Yeah. Right. Oh, wait, right. I just thought of another theory that I had that I was convinced of. 
I thought that Marcus Silver was her ex-best friend's dad. Oh, so did I at one point. Yeah, yes. Because there's so much made of this friend breakup. And I thought, I guess maybe, I don't know that that was ever adequately explained. Yeah, that's a good point. I thought that it was, she was sleeping with her best friend's father and the best friend found out. Yes, I did think that at one point too. Mm-hmm. There's just, it was a lot. There was also a listener voicemail about a theory that we can listen to now. Hey, Becca and Olivia here to leave a message for when we were bright and beautiful. I like that it was a little bit of a controversial pick, not controversial, but just a lot of differing opinions. I'm sure there will be on this one. But my question for you was, did you get the feeling that the twist about her quote unquote adopted father Um, I thought I was going in a different direction. I thought when her brother Billy freaked out that it was going to be that, did anyone else think it was because she molested him? Like meaning the brother, Cassie did. So I don't know. I just, I got that feeling. I was like, oh gosh, is it going in that direction? Especially when they were talking about how she would get into bed with them. And even like as an adult, she was talking about like laying on their bodies. And it was just a very interesting brother-sister dynamic. Again, I know it was adopted, but still um, very creepy. And um, I thought it was going in that direction. So it actually totally took me by surprise when it was all about Lawrence. But I don't know. I'd be interested to hear what others think. Thanks. Bye. So I feel like I can't wrap my mind around talking about this book in its totality. So can we like break it down into the kind of the two storylines? Like first we can talk about the Billy rape trial plotline and then we can talk about the Cassie and Lawrence plotline. Yes. I actually think to that point, this is kind of why this book is so divisive because I think there are people that read it and see it as the story through Cassie's point of view. Mm -hmm. And there are people that read it as the trial. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, but it's not really only about the trial. It's not even really focused on that actual crime. So anyway, but yes, we can, we can break it down. So when did you think that Billy was guilty? Cause I have a very, I have a lot of thoughts on this. So I'm interested to hear yours. I mean, I thought immediately if only because it was written by a female author and I can't imagine Jennifer Weiner recommending a men's rights book. So I, <laughs> I had to imagine that he was guilty from the very beginning, but I couldn't figure out how and why he was guilty. Like, I knew that it was, that was going to be a twist, but I wasn't sure, like, what exactly the twist was. Yeah. How about you? I, I felt the same way. Like, I read from the very first page assuming that he was guilty. Absolutely. And I kind of thought it was implied for everyone. So... I saw a lot of comments that said that they felt that this was like uh, basically defending, you know, a rich white rapist and their family. And I didn't read it that way at all, really. I because I was like, oh, I I thought we know that he's guilty. And this is just a commentary on the ways that media and society in general defends these people. I mean, it's sickening, but it's also reality, unfortunately. I don't know. What are your thoughts there? I can kind of see why somebody would say that, especially because he gets acquitted, which again is true to life. And like, it really brought up a lot of thoughts about like the Brett Kavanaugh trial for me. Yeah, me too. Me too. And so it is true to life. And and it, but it, it did, I mean, I don't know how many like 
rich young white boys are reading this but like I, I don't think it like glorified raping right. your girlfriend you know it, I think it maybe defended him and continued the narrative that you could get off if you were rich enough and, and white but like I don't think it like glorified anything if that if that distinction makes sense yeah I agree with you and I think that is an important distinction <laughs> like he wasn't the hero of the book where he didn't then like ride off into the sunset like laughing into his burlap sacks with dollar signs on them yeah thank god like it was actually really interesting to me how how small of a character he was even though the book was about him yeah i i liked that though i because i thought that really drove home the point of like we're not going to get into his brain because it doesn't matter like, yeah, I felt like at the beginning, not knowing what was happening with Cassie and Lawrence, I was like, why isn't this book told from Diana's point of view? Mm-hmm. Why are we in the terrible sister's head before I really understood and connected the dots of what was happening? But I get why it was in retrospect. But I did think it made for like a little bit of a hard read in the first hundred pages yeah. because you were like, I'm reading about this trial, but I, I, I'm not hearing enough about the trial. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. And I would wonder how many people that feel really strongly that it was like glorifying or defending actually got past that point. <laughs> like, frankly, I probably would have put this down were it not a book Olympic. Yeah, that's understandable. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to read in certain parts, for sure. I kept reading not to find out if he was guilty or not, but to find out if the author would acquit him or not. Because mm. on one hand, I was like... The realistic version of this book is that he's acquitted, unfortunately. Like right. that's that's the hard, uncomfortable, disgusting reality of society. Or is it, you know, justice is served and for once there's the outcome that there should be. I, I wasn't sure. So that's yeah. kind of what compelled me to keep reading. Yeah. One thing that I thought was interesting, and I, I don't know that I fully understand, and I'm, I'm wondering if you have thoughts, is like, so Lawrence was the father, was pushing for a plea deal all along. And like, do you think he knew that Billy was guilty? Do you think he was protecting himself? Like, how, mm. if so, like, how did he know he was guilty? Or was he just like, I'm a dog, so all men are dogs? I think... I didn't really think about this, but I think that he was probably protecting himself. Like he was like, the the longer this goes on, the dirtier this is mm. going to get, the more will be exposed. But I also think he's a coward. <laughs> you know, he's a disgusting coward who probably assumed, I don't know, there's a sort of narrative with like white men of a certain age that's like oh men can't do anything right now and if we we call you honey and like slap your ass then like whatever like we're from a different time like that kind of attitude where he just was like oh well well, no matter what happens billy's gonna get his life ruined so we should just get get this over with i don't know Hmm. i'm not quite sure yeah i wasn't either how did you feel about the lawyer i had very um I had a real evolution of thought there because at first I really liked his character and I thought it was a really interesting juxtaposition to the wealth of the Quinn family that he was like a little more like salt of the earth, I guess. And there were like some comic relief moments in there. But then once it got into the trial, I was really disgusted with his whole strategy being, we don't have to prove 
that Billy didn't do it. We just have to poke holes in the other case so there's reasonable doubt. And I was like, of course there are people who do this for a living. And I was like, just, oh God, like what a disgusting job. Yeah. And it was kind of implied the whole time that he thought Billy did it. Like, at least that's what I was getting. Oh, I didn't get that necessarily. I don't know. I didn't get that he he knew Billy was guilty. Yeah, I guess it was that he didn't care. Yeah. I just kind of had this feeling like he assumed that he was, but he didn't, like well, his yeah. job was still what his job right. was. But I totally agree with you. It was gross. <laughs> yeah. What about Diana? I mean... I feel like you didn't really even hear from her until the end of the book. You didn't. <laughs> Which I saw some people have problems with that. And I, if I had been reading it as the the trial and the crime of the rape was central to the story, which I never was for whatever reason, mm-hmm. I think it would have bothered me more. But what were your thoughts? I don't know. It's really hard to have coherent thoughts on because, you know, it's a book. This is all fake and this is made up for maximum drama. Okay, so have you read, like, courtroom-style books before? Or, like, I I never have. So it was kind of a new experience for me. I've read a couple, and I generally don't like them. I find them to be really dry. And so I was really interested that this held my attention so much, and I was whipping through it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, like, the, the second half, the courtroom piece moved way faster than the first half, which is interesting and unexpected. Yes, I would agree with you there. Yeah, I felt the same way. I wasn't actually expecting to like fly through it the way that I did. So it was interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's take an ad break. So this probably won't come as a surprise to people that know me, but when I was growing up, like eight or nine, I would create these extremely elaborate Christmas lists starting in September. These lists would include links and rank the items that I wanted most. And it was all very organized. But these days, I take the same kind of approach to gift giving. (laughs) So starting around October, I keep a running list of gift ideas and links of things I think family members and friends will like. And whenever an idea strikes, I write it down and I take a note of that item so I remember to buy it. I'll share one gift idea I have because I don't think my dad listens to this podcast. But if he does, please skip this part, Bruce. (laughs) So I actually saw this on Uncommon Goods. It's a leather-bound book from the New York Times that features basically the entire history of NFL teams. So oh. you yeah, you can it's really cool and you can choose of course like your loved one's favorite team. So my dad loves the Bucks and it's just such a nice looking coffee table book but also has so much information and you can personalize it and that's why I love Uncommon Goods. I also love searching Uncommon Goods for unique gifts. They have products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade in the U.S., and they have meaningful, out-of-the-ordinary gifts, which are not cheesy, which is key. Okay, so a couple of my favorite things that I think would make good gifts. First thing is you can do a custom puzzle that has the New York Times cover from, like, any date. So you could do it for, like, a wedding anniversary. You could do it for the day somebody was born. Like, I think that would be a great dad gift. I agree. I agree. And I also really like their their kitchen gifts. They have fun food gifts. They have limoncello kits or like fun cocktail making kits. But then they also have really cute, interesting like kitchen and barware that I think would be really interesting for like a mother-in-law, a mom, a sister, like just cool looking cutting boards, cheese plates, things like that. 
And that's honestly only like the tip of the iceberg. You could be searching on uncommon goods forever. It's honestly yes. really entertaining. There's so much to choose from. I also love that shopping at uncommon goods means you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. Another cool thing is that for every purchase you make at uncommon goods, they give $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than two and a half million dollars to date. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash BOP. That's uncommongoods.com slash BOP for 15% off. Okay, so let's talk about, I guess, what you would call the main twist in this, which is the Cassie and Lawrence plotline. Yes. So to start, how did you feel about Cassie's character? Awful. I felt before knowing what she had gone through, I felt I found her very dislikable, which I think was the point. I think that was very intentional on the author's part. Yeah. And I also couldn't understand why we were in her head and why she was the POV character. Also being that she was somewhat removed from the family, having moved to New Haven as opposed to being kind of like in the thick of things. So I felt awful about her, and then I felt guilty for judging her so hard once I got to the twist and understood what had ultimately happened. Yeah, I from that first chapter, I was like, this is an incredibly unlikable human being. But then I was like, I kind of like unlikable characters. I don't know if I liked her more at the end, but I understood more, mm. I guess, a little bit. I ultimately felt really bad for her, given that, she's gone through this but then she was outed by I guess some combination of the the police officer and the lawyer and she didn't she didn't go public with this on her own terms yeah you know I was talking to my friend about this book and she that was her first reaction like she found it so problematic the way that that the trauma and that story was like outed to basically the public yes and it was extremely disturbing yeah (laughs) and that was one of the most unsettling parts for me was like in the end like she didn't even have control of the truth of the story you know she didn't even have agency over that right but again it like it didn't feel untrue to life or it didn't feel unbelievable where it's like how could this be it felt sad but could happen I think that the commentary about how media and the world can use like the worst thing that's ever happened to you for all the wrong reasons or for its own benefit, I think is correct, unfortunately. I'm very curious to talk to you about the relationship between Eleanor, the adoptive mother, and Cassie. I mean, this wasn't a comfortable dynamic to read about, but I I liked it. I thought it was really interesting and developed, but that's just just me. What were your feelings about it? Well, I was I was interested specifically because I know you talk so much about body positivity and like the body oh, yeah. <laughs> the body attitudes of older generations. Mm-hmm. And so I was just interested at how you felt about like her policing Cassie's body being like such a main facet of their relationship. I thought it was accurate. I mean, I don't have a similar relationship with my mom to be clear. Honestly, like looking back on it now, because I read this a couple of months ago, I can't remember the exact instances, although I know like what you're talking about. But I'm right in remembering that like she kind of always said that like she looked cheap or like that she like all right. Like she all that she had was her body and like she's wearing like a tank top or shorts or something like that. There was definitely like there were two sides of it. Like one was about her being viewed sexually where like I think there's one scene where she comes into the 
living room on Christmas morning in a nightgown that's like kind of see-through, but she's like nine. And she's like, you can't do that in front of your brothers. So there was like one oh, yeah. sexualization plot line. But yes. then also it was about her like food intake and needing to stay thin and like mm-hmm. kind of pressuring her into a light eating disorder where it was like the whole family was like oh yeah cassie doesn't eat food looking back on it what it says to me is like oh cassie really is just this plot device to like mirror all of society's like (laughs) pressures on women as they navigate like terrible things (laughs) you know and i do remember as you brought up like that nightgown anecdote being like one of the most for some reason upsetting parts of it to me something that like made my skin crawl just the fact that she was made to feel like dirty Mm -hmm. at at such a young age was really I don't know very highly disturbing to me one thing so I I again didn't feel great about this relationship again didn't feel like it was unrealistic it was just like I I don't know I tend to enjoy fiction that is life-affirming as opposed to this which is whatever the opposite of that is (laughs) yeah but there was one line so when Eleanor goes to New Haven after it comes out that Lawrence was having an affair I mean first of all one thought that was this is an aside before I tell you the line when it came out even before Eleanor knew that Lawrence had been grooming and then sleeping with Cassie it was like why doesn't she leave him like he wasn't the one with the money it was her family's money oh eleanor right and i was just like why are you with him mm-hmm. yeah. like it doesn't seem like you like him or respect him and from his point of view i think it was he once said to cassie that she didn't like sex the The wife didn't like sex so it was like what are you getting out of this relationship other than keeping up appearances which i don't know maybe that could have been her reason for staying in it but i was confused why she didn't leave sooner even before she knew about this Mm. but anyway when Eleanor goes to New Haven there was this line that Cassie says and she says the Eleanor I want and the Eleanor I have are not the same and that felt so that like gutted me and felt so true to life where it's like what you need you can't necessarily get the people you love to support you in exactly the way you want yeah you need to reconcile that was like so heartbreaking and so real. I like gasped almost when I when I read that sentence. I think I remember the scene because I think it, it was the one part where I actually like teared up because if I'm remembering it correctly, it just felt like such, I don't know, maybe Eleanor was like a metaphor to the way that like everyone failed Cassie, <laughs> you know, like everyone failed her. Yeah. And even though when she knew it didn't feel like she did enough, but like that, that realization, just that one line, like just knifed my chest a good one but sad well here's the question for you in the end do you think that eleanor sold out cassie to save billy yes i think (laughs) probably based on everything else yes i i think so what about you yes and that was so wildly upsetting to me that well first of all because it was a woman protecting a man and i get that it's her son but i was so wildly upset by that and then also like her protecting a man instead of Cassie like it wasn't just like of course not of course you would protect your son but like I get that maternal instinct but it was like you were trading one child for another yeah when one is guilty and one is a victim right uh, that really made my blood boil I, I guess it was set up the whole time to be like that she didn't feel as maternal towards Cassie and she was ad- she was adopted and it wasn't necessarily Eleanor's choice so the maternal bond was weaker there but I oh that made my blood fucking boil 
Yeah, same. Okay, let's take another ad break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. So Becca, you and I have talked about this a bit before, but I feel like one of the biggest stressors when it comes to writing or freelancing for that matter is the lack of, you know, instructions, a guide to how to do the thing. (laughs) And actually a thing I hear very often from people about writing or freelancing is the same thing. It's, I have no idea where to start. I don't know how to get from A to B. But work isn't the only area of my life or anyone's life where I've had this experience. And I can imagine that I am not the only one that feels this way. Yeah, I I think another one that comes to mind is deciding to stay in or leave a relationship. And also, I mean, this is a work one, but deciding whether to stay or leave a job. Like, I just feel like having somebody to talk to about these things, having counsel from an impartial third party can be so, so helpful to help you process what you are actually feeling and then game out, you know, the different scenarios. Because I find that sometimes I build things up in my mind to be a much bigger deal than they are. And when somebody helps me to walk through those steps to get from A to B, it makes so much more sense. But I can't always do that for myself. Totally. Those are all instances that I can relate to. And for me, the times in my life where I've had to deal with grief have been some of the most overwhelming. And I always felt like there should have been some sort of guide on how to grieve correctly. And and there just wasn't. <laughs> but being in therapy helped me realize that there is no single way to grieve and there is no correct way to do it. If you're looking for support too, BetterHelp is a great resource to find a therapist who is trained to figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive ways to cope. Even if you think your problems aren't big or scary enough for therapy, it's important to know that everyone deserves to feel their best. And if you're feeling stuck, BetterHelp can help you. BetterHelp has connected more than 3 million people with licensed therapists. It's convenient, secure, and accessible anywhere. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no taking more time out of your schedule than you need to. Get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash badonpaper. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash badonpaper. So how did you feel about the ending of this book? So I agree with what you said earlier, where it felt true to life for him to be acquitted. And I think it would have felt too dream worldy if he were if he were convicted. Yeah. So I see what the author was doing there. The one thing that I wish, I wish there was just like an epilogue of Cassie being okay and being past it. There's like a little epilogue of her with Lawrence, but like even past that, like I just, I wanted her, whatever it was, living in New Haven and having her own life that had more in it than her current life in New Haven did. I just like, I wanted a little more. And then my second comment, I was furious that Lawrence gave her a gift in the last scene and we never find out what it is. Oh my gosh. I need to know. You know that writing (laughs) advice where it's like, if there is a gun in the first act, it better go off by the end of the play. And this felt like that. I mean, it was obviously much shorter. It wasn't planted early on, but I was like, he gave you a gift. What's in the fucking gift? <laughs> I know. Okay. Maybe this was the most, like, I kind of forgot about this when I started reading all the reviews and like thoughts and feelings from other people. But yes, this was one of the things where I put, I ended the book and I was like, wait, 
what was that? Yeah. <laughs> Which I actually, I, I don't love this specific example. Generally, I love books where I have to like sit there and be like, wait, what was the author trying to do there? Like, what is my interpretation of that? I love a last page twist, but this was just like a last page unfulfilled <laughs> promise oh, of like. What do you think it was? If you had to guess, oh. like I, I I had no idea. So when, there was so much going through my brain processing when I ended this that I had no. I remember I being no like, idea. I have no clue. No clue what it is. No I, clue. I have no idea. And I really don't want to speculate what such a dark character would be gifting to someone else. Like, it feels like pr- nothing good. I know. Oh, maybe it's like. A metaphor, but what would that be? I don't know. Ugh, I, don't I don't know. know. Lawrence, disgusting. How did you feel about the ending? Um, I thought it was reflective of how I felt about the whole book. Was like I felt conflicted. <laughs> okay, I want to. You said this earlier, and I want to dive a little deeper into this. So, do you generally like books where everyone is deeply unlikable? I yeah, I think I do. Oh, interesting. I guess it's a better way to put it. I like very dark books usually. And a lot of times in dark books, the characters are very unlikable and the material is sometimes difficult. But um, yeah, I I like unlikable characters. Okay. I feel like it's kind of like people, like it makes them more vulnerable. And then Mm -hmm. I feel like I connect with them more sometimes. I don't know. What about you? (laughs) I feel like it's really hard to have a book of exclusively unlikable characters. I... Mm -hmm. I definitely can get on board with a book with like one or two unlikable characters. And especially in family books, that's usually the case. But it was really hard for me to do a book with 100% unlikable characters. How did you feel about Nate, the other brother? Confused. I felt really confused. And I also felt like maybe he was the least, well, that's not true. I was going to say he was the least developed, but that might have been Billy, which was intentional. But it felt like Nate was so different chapter to chapter. Right. I like couldn't get a re- I couldn't get a I couldn't get my arms around him. That makes sense. That makes sense. Certainly didn't like him. But yeah, yeah, I had a hard time with like straight 100% of people being unlikable. I guess I said this a minute ago and I'm like, "Oh, why did you say it that way?" Because <laughs> I was like, "Oh, it makes me connect with them." Obviously, I had no interest in connecting with Lawrence. <laughs> sure, <laughs> like, sure. in the book or Billy, but I I did I don't think I disliked Cassie in the end. Like I just It it did not that she had a redemption, but it felt like there was a reason for why she was the way she was. And that made a lot of sense. And I know that we have this like later in the outline, but have you watched the Luckiest Girl Alive movie? Yes. And I wanted to talk about it in relation to this, actually. Yes. So I wanted to know what you, I'm curious to hear what you wanted to talk about in it. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the parallels between Cassie and Ani, the pressure that society puts on women to be likable and to be nice and Mm. that these characters both bucked that expectation and I think in Ani's case she was much angrier than Cassie was not necessarily in like the anger phase necessarily yeah I I just thought it was really interesting and and I, I I hadn't read the book the luckiest girl alive book before the movie came out and I was like wow, I really think this was super well done and I thought it was really important. And I think like seeing these characters that are not necessarily likable women and that they don't necessarily, in neither case did they like change where it was like, and this is the story about how Cassie's heart melted and she became like a nice woman that like fits into societal norms. That's interesting because I had a totally different (laughs) connection to Luckiest Girl Alive. Oh, what was yours? 
So mine was the fact that, so I was reading a lot of reviews of this book and a lot of them were like, how could anyone read this book? How could anyone recommend this book? How could anyone say this book is a good thing? It was so disturbing. It was so, it made me so uncomfortable. And I thought about the, the rape scene in Luckiest Girl Alive, the the movie, because I'd read the book and I knew it happened. And I found that scene to be so incredibly difficult to watch. It's a long scene. It's graphic. It's really, it's, it's very disturbing. I mean, there's no other way to put it. It's very disturbing and it's not really like, it's not softened at all, which it shouldn't be. But I, I kind of, I don't know, it made me think about this book and it made me think about like, where is the line between when things are presented as entertainment, because like that's a movie made for entertainment. This is a book. Books are, are a form of entertainment. You know, those particular themes and aren't entertaining, obviously. But I don't know. Where's the line between like what is too much versus what needs to be very uncomfortable in our faces because that's the reality? <laughs> I don't know. It's just I was thinking about the, them at the same time. That's interesting. I don't have the answer. Like if anyone listening is waiting for me to say something really intelligent, I don't have it. But that is a really interesting thought about where that line is. And I can see where you would draw that parallel between both of these books. Yeah. And I think another thing kind of goes back to what you were saying, which is I feel like when you have first person books or movies about someone's experience who has been sexually assaulted, like I, I think it kind of pushes back against this idea. I think a lot of us are like, well, that couldn't be me. Like I couldn't be in that situation or I wouldn't react that way after I had been in that situation, whether we want to or not. And so I feel like they are good tools to foster empathy in people and to push against biases that we might all have because you suddenly are in that other person's brain. You're like, well, if I had been through this, I, I... yeah, I'd be pretty fucked up too. I agree. I mean, I think reading overall is an empathy building activity where you're putting yourself in other people's shoes, whether it's something as extreme as in this case, a survivor of sexual abuse, or whether it's something lighter that it's just somebody who lives in a different country or in a different socioeconomic class or, you know, has a different lived experience than you. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is just like at the extreme end of that and... Oh, sorry. To get back to my Jeffrey Dahmer point, that was one experience where I was watching it and I was like, what does this do? Mm. (laughs) Like, what exactly is this pushing against? Like in Luckiest Girl Alive, it's like, you know, this idea that women are often dismissed when they have, have been drinking and they are raped and... And in and in the book, it's it's similar cases. And anyway, my oh, point I'm is glad like, you brought that up. Sorry, <laughs> that wasn't what no, you were no, trying to bring up. But I'm glad that, that you brought that up because we didn't talk about the fact that she was drunk in yeah the when the incident happened and how that was so discrediting to her, even though it, it absolute like he absolutely did rape her. And I thought that was an interesting nuance to the story and and you know i think it was another facet against the lawyer character who was then like taking advantage of that and that felt really true to me as yes well, it's like well. she was I asking mean, for it she was i'm not saying in this case she was i don't remember what she was said to be wearing or if it was ever mentioned but it was like you know it was like she was wearing a yeah. short skirt and like in this case yeah. it was like she drank too much and it was like okay mm-hmm. still she like didn't consent to have sex with this person yeah even if she was blackout but- drunk 
But that is still, I mean, it's amazing to me. Like that is still a very prom- like prominent thought that people have, like society as a whole. Yeah. It's just like, oh, well, I mean, I don't even think people realize they're doing it. Like it's just the inherent question is how can we disprove this person, not you know, how can we make sure justice is served? And that's why, you know, white, rich people, men, obviously, white, rich men get let off because they are given the benefit of the doubt and the woman is not. Um, My last question before we leave this book and talk about some matter. Would you, in real life, recommend this book to a friend? Uh um, not lightly. <laughs> and I think that's why at least I hope we were, we did a good job at emphasizing every time we mention it, that there are a lot of trigger warnings to read. I think, I think I would. Yeah. Okay. I think I would, but I would give the, the appropriate warnings, not to everyone, <laughs> but what about you? I would recommend it to certain people. I wouldn't blanket recommend it to anyone, but you know, if, if you hadn't mm-hmm. had said that Grace had already read this, I could see her enjoying this because she does like dark, messed up books. I, I went to look up her review yesterday because I was starting to doubt myself. And I was like, am I like really fucked up that I like had an OK reading experience with this? I mean, it was difficult. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But like I didn't take away the thing that a lot of people said, which was how could you ever no one should read this book. And of course, if I thought that, I would never have been like, let's do it for book club. <laughs> um, but yeah, she gave it an A. So, I mean, I think yeah. if you like dark books, this is darker than most. And I think that's kind of where we're going, where it's like the thrillers have to be twistier. The dark books have to be darker. Like everything mm-hmm. has to be amplified because everything's been done before. But at the same time, like I, I do agree with a lot of what we talked about, that like there are important messages in it as well. I don't know how I feel about whether it was pulled off in the right way, but... I don't know. Like, I think the point was to be uncomfortable. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it certainly made me think about points in my own life where I had told myself a story that was more comfortable to Mm -hmm. me and maybe a guy I was friends with or a guy I was dating than, like, the truth. (laughs) Um, And that's, that's what I kept going back to with this book and probably what I'll think about and talk about when I recommend this book to anyone. I don't know how to pivot out of this in a sensitive way. Want to talk well, about I think, stuff? I think, <laughs> yeah. Um, you go first. Yours is yours is more in the middle where mine is just like pure fluff. What's your obsession? So my obsession is this podcast called Maintenance Phase. Have you ever listened to it? I have not. I've downloaded a bunch of episodes and I have not actually listened to it, but I've heard nothing but raves. Yeah. I've. It was recommended to me so many times and I just kind of like, I don't know, didn't get around to it. I finally started listening to it. It is incredible. It is like my shit. I love it so much. It's all about like tearing apart fad diets and like Dr. Oz and like all of these really extreme wellness trends that are out there. There's a whole like series of episodes on Oprah and like all the weight loss stuff she did and promoted. It's incredible. It is so well-researched. I love it question did you start at the beginning or did you start from the most recent episode no i just skipped around like there were certain episodes that seemed more interesting to me than others okay there is a recent one on apple cider vinegar which i love Hmm. and the brag empire it's just check it out highly recommend okay um 
What is your obsession? I bought a purple coated anthropology that I am obsessed with. Oh, and it's it's just turning to coat weather. It is. It was back ordered. I ordered it probably in August. It just came this week. It is like a pinky purple, like I would call it orchid, maybe. Oh, nice. I have been wanting a statement colored coat for a couple years. And I've bought a bunch and I just haven't loved any of them. I've been trying like more like neons. And I think this was the right vibe where it's like a softer color. I'm obsessed. So catch me in my purple coat all winter. I'm excited. That color looks great on you. I'm kind of imagining it as a similar color to what you're wearing right now. Oh, no. It's it's like more pastel. We'll link it in the show notes. Oh, oh, okay. Okay, cool. And it's really well made. It's it's lined fully and like very good quality wool. Like I was very impressed. Nice. Good find. Mm-hmm. What have you been reading? So I read this. I read this all in one sitting. And then I had previously picked up a book. I was screening for a book club a while ago, and it was one of those books where I was like, I don't think this is our book club book, but I'm going to come back to this. And it's called The Ark by Tori Henwood Hone. I'm really enjoying it. It is very, the writing is very like snarky, I guess. It's kind of a satire, a send up of like a lot of New York startup culture. And (laughs) the premise of the book is that these two best friends are at this women's member club similar to the wing and one of them uh, basically gets invited to this ultra exclusive dating service called the arc and it's like wildly expensive and it like promises to match you with like your one true love and so yeah i guess it's like a send-up of of dating and startup culture and it's oh like i just feel like i'm like oh the author and i would would have a lot to talk about oh it sounds good it is good it's not like dystopian is it No, it's not dystopian at all, but it is very, I don't know how to describe the writing other than snarky. Mm -hmm. I think I know what you mean. Yeah. Cool. But I got to know about yours. I need to know everything. (laughs) Special emergency bonus episode. All right. So I'm deep in my rereads from high school, middle school. So I'm reading The Awakening by Kate Chopin. Chopin. It's interesting. It's more of like a classic I have some more thoughts on that, but we'll get to the other one, which is The Face on the Milk Carton by Caroline Cooney. Um, Wow. All I have to say is, wow. It is both way better than I was expecting in some ways. that is not what I expected you to say. In some ways. Like, there are some lines where (laughs) the one I shared was the metaphor about milk, which made no sense to me. It was like, I felt curiously heavy, like the difference between skim milk and whole milk. But there's other lines that are actually pretty good. So I was kind of surprised there. And overall, it's it's um <laughs> it's not aged well. I'll just say that. Yeah, I was gonna say I, I was wondering how it held up in a contemporary setting where cell phones and the internet exist, and if you're just like I It doesn't roll. even make sense though in and of itself. Oh, okay. Like the whole premise is like chapter one, she's there's this whole thing made about how she's not allowed to drink milk and she loves milk so much and like you just need to eat drink milk when you're eating a peanut butter sandwich to the credit i feel like there was a point in time where milk was milk had kale's publicist like do you remember the got milk campaigns oh yeah i I was like given milk like you need milk to survive now it's like if you drink milk you're literally like spawn of satan like whole milk who are you (laughs) like but um yeah 
it's it was a thing but it's just like very direct from page one that she loves milk she's not allowed to have it and uh she has to drink juice so then the one time i guess she just happens to steal the milk from her friend she's like that's me oh it's me (laughs) it's me on the milk carton and so it's like from chapter one you're off to the races there's no build-up whatsoever and she just goes home and she's like well, I guess my parents kidnapped me. Like, it's there's not even any, like, hesitation, really. It's just like, well, I've been kidnapped. Guess I'll go home and go to cake decorating class with mom. And also, for some reason, there's this thread of, like, dieting throughout the whole thing. It's it's a lot. Maybe we'll do a bonus episode at some point, and I'll have you, I'll force you to reread it, and we can have a grand old time. Okay, okay. If you do not want to relive... For the second time, or maybe you never, maybe you missed it to begin with, the first time, The Face of the Milk Carton, we have another suggestion for you, which is our November book club pick, which is the book The Cloisters by Katie Hayes. And this book is being compared to a cross between Ninth House and The Secret History. And I think that's very spot on. It's very atmospheric and moody and fall. I guess it's not a dark academia because she's in the workforce, but it has dark academia vibes. The book is about a recent uh, college graduate who gets a, a job at the Met Museum and gets assigned to the Met Cloisters. And she gets very embroiled in both the search for the world's first tarot deck. So it has like a bit of a historical mystery in it. Um, and she also gets involved in the drama and personal lives of the eccentric staff of the Met Cloisters. So it's it's the kind of thriller that I like. I don't think most people would call it a thriller. Like it's kind of just like a drama. It sounds national treasure y. Oh no. Sort of. It you said I it sounds like it. I mean, yeah, but it's like going to antique stores, not like that is Heisty. National Treasure. Oh, is it? I've never seen National Treasure. So, sort of. I thought it was much more action-y. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm still looking forward to it either way. Yeah, it's it's such a great fall read, like a fall drama. So that's what we've got for you. Come talk to us about this book in the Facebook group. I would love to hear other people's thoughts. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at Bad on Paper Podcast. Uh, and I'm on Instagram at Becca M. Freeman. And I'm at Olivia Mentor. See you next week. Bye. Bye.